As you probably all know by now, I'm a travel writer. So in the course of my work, I'd estimate that I fly somewhere between 150,000 to 200,000 miles in a typical year. Obviously, the past year has been anything but typical due to the COVID pandemic. In fact, I've only taken a handful of flights since the beginning of 2020, but that still pegs my personal carbon footprint much higher than that of the average American, which, according to the Nature Conservancy, is around 16 tons of carbon dioxide per person per year. It's even further above that of the average person globally, which is only around 4 tons. Flying far less frequently has gotten me thinking about spending less time in the air personally, but I've also been pondering the environmental impact of the aviation industry overall. On today's episode, I'll be talking to folks from an international airline, a major airport, and a climate-focused NGO about the ways the aviation industry is attempting to become more sustainable and what we as travelers can do to encourage further progress. Just one production note, you won't be hearing from my co-host Catherine Romine on this episode because she's taking some time at home with the newest member of the Conscious Traveler family, her baby daughter, Inda. She'll be back in some of our other episodes and future seasons, though. Welcome to Conscious Traveler. We're your hosts, Eric and Catherine, and we're excited to dive into the world of meaningful, mind-opening travel with you. With our stories and interviews, we hope to make it easier for you to indulge your curiosity and seek out rare experiences wherever you go next. Marking over 100 years since its founding, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines is the oldest airline in the world. But it also happens to be one of the most forward-thinking in terms of sustainability. In fact, KLM CEO Peter Elbers has actively promoted taking the train on short-distance journeys instead of flying, which is pretty unusual. As part of its Fly Responsibly campaign, KLM has also embraced ambitious goals such as cutting its CO2 emissions by 15% and its waste by 50% by the year 2030. It's also the first airline in the world to operate a commercial passenger flight using a modicum of sustainable synthetic kerosene, which emits up to 85% less carbon dioxide than conventional jet fuel, on its route from Amsterdam to Madrid in January. I talked to KLM's Vice President of Sustainability, Carl Bockstein, about the various initiatives the airline is pursuing to minimize its environmental impact in the coming years and the hurdles that it, along with other airlines, will continue to face. Good morning, Carl, or I suppose it's evening in Amsterdam where you are. Can you tell us about how sustainability fits into KLM's overall identity? Yes, sure. To begin with, we're the oldest airline on the world, but still under the same name. So it means that we also have a right to speak. And we're also aware of the impact of aviation because we're doing this already for 101 years now. So with all our experience, we know there's impact. And at KLM, we have also a kind of a pioneering spirit. And this pioneering spirit is, of course, because we started early with flying, but we also try to start early with flying more sustainable. And that's why we did this call two years ago to uh, the industry and to the markets and to the consumers to think twice about flying. Definitely. Well, the airline also has a more overarching sustainability initiative called KLM's Fly Responsibly Initiative. And I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about why it was launched and when, and then we can get into some of the solutions that it's proposing to bring down the airline's carbon footprint and what some of those goals are. The campaign was launched two years ago in order to invite the industry, to invite our colleagues, our competitors, to work together on sustainable flight because everybody mm-hmm. feels that the, the boundaries of the planet in terms of climate and of, let's say, resources are 
within reach. So mm-hmm. we have to act sustainably. And it's more like an invitation to everyone, not as a competition factor, but as an invitation to work together on all this with universities, with aircraft manufacturers, with fuel suppliers, and also with our customers. That's what's so interesting about it to me is that it's part of the entire supply chain, right? Like you've just said, fuel resources, plane manufacturers, airline operations, but then also talking to customers about some of the things that the airline is doing, but also some of the things that they can do to be more aware of their carbon footprint. What are some of the things that the airline suggests, both for passengers and that KLM is working on for itself to start bringing down that carbon footprint? Our customers are invited to participate in, for example, compensation programs. By the way, compensation programs for us are the end of the line. It begins by reducing flying. That's mm-hmm. So if you look at decarbonization, which is the main theme of aviation in terms of climate strategy, then there's three steps. The first one is reduce. So in terms of fly less or fly with an efficient aircraft. Right. That's why we're investing in a very efficient Every new generation aircraft is in our fleet. It costs a lot of money, and we are in difficult times today, but the money that we still have is going to be invested in next generation aircraft. Sure, flying a Boeing 787 Dreamliner instead of an older 747 with four engines instead of two kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing, and new engine technologies. So Mm -hmm. reduction is the first step. The second step is to replace So you can replace, for example, a trip to Brussels from Amsterdam with an aircraft in terms to a train, a quite comfortable train on that route. So replace the flight and replace fossil fuels with sustainable fuels. Mm -hmm. So that's the replace strategy. And then the end of the line is the third step. It's compensation. If you have no solutions to fly less or to fly on a different way, then you are able to compensate. And we're inviting our customers to participate in compensation projects. But nowadays, we're also inviting our customers to participate in the replacement of fossil fuels. So we are asking them, if you want to fly on sustainable fuels, please help us invest in sustainable fuels because they are still very expensive and uh, we need to scale up the industries of our fuel suppliers. And passengers are actually helping us. How are they helping? Our corporate customers are currently helping us by investing in these fuels. So we actually acquire fuels on the amounts of the corporate customers. And the other part is that our cargo customers are also participating in the sustainable fuel program. So they're investing in the acquisition. Interesting. So you give them the option to purchase some of those sustainable aviation fuels to fuel the flights that they're paying for, for their business. How interesting. If we can talk a little more about sustainable aviation fuels, but KLM has actually been very seriously involved in the development of them and recently flew a flight from Amsterdam to Madrid, I believe, using a mix of it along with conventional fuel. Can you tell us more about some of the ways that KLM is pursuing sustainable aviation fuels? where the airline is at the moment with them and why it's so important, just how much they can reduce the carbon footprint of a flight. Yeah, the idea of sustainable aviation fuel is that it is produced from feedstock that is already in the atmosphere. It means that it's grown from biomaterials and then the biomaterials are converted into kerosene, which Mm. actually also emits CO2. Some people (laughs) forget that also sustainable aviation fuels emit 
carbon dioxide. But sure. since it is subtracted from the atmosphere, there's a potential of 80%, 80% of reduction of carbon dioxide emission. I see. It's not that they don't produce carbon dioxide. It's that you're already using carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere and just reusing it, essentially. It is reusing. That's correct. So biofuels were introduced 12 years ago by KLM on a pioneering flight with a KLM aircraft. Wow. Since then, it's less than a percent still of biofuels in our tanks. But today, and just two months ago, we went at next level. And next level means that it's not biofuels, but synthetic fuels. And synthetic fuels are even more interesting because they subtract directly CO2 from the air with carbon dioxide substractors, direct air capture, and they combine that with hydrogen, which is produced from sustainable electrical power. And then if you combine that in a plant, then you can produce synthetic fuels. It's technology that is now being proven. And we've done this flight to Madrid with a small amount of synthetic fuels. And that's the first in aviation. And we hope to inspire the industry to work on upscaling of synthetic fuels as well. Absolutely. I was going to say, you know, given the small amount of it and also the fact that the technology, though proven, is still somewhat new, it must be very expensive to produce synthetic fuel still. So it's only really usable on a very limited basis. Is that an accurate portrayal? Yeah, it's uh, astronomically expensive at this moment. We had 500 liters in our tank. And it costs us the, the price of a nice sports car. So it's, <laughs> uh, it's, let's say it's not an economic model yet. But if people understand and industries are prepared to step in and if our customers and the governments are prepared to co-invest in these technologies, then we'll make the steps that are necessary. I see. Was that part of the point of the flight to show that it could be mixed in with conventional fuel and the plane could operate just normally and you were monitoring perhaps its output and stuff like that? That's correct. That's correct. It's been proven that it's viable and it's not an issue because the chemical substantiation of synthetic kerosene is exactly the same as the fossil fuel. Mm. I mean, it's the same kerosene. Right. The only thing is that it's synthetic and more pure. So based on other emissions like nitrogen and sulfur, it's even a bit cleaner and a bit more efficient. Interesting. But the main reason is that it is subtracting CO2 from the atmosphere. Well, it's something hopefully we'll see more of. I was thinking if we could turn the conversation to beyond flying and beyond uh, the gas that you put into the airplanes, KLM does work on a number of different levels to reduce its environmental impact. And I'm wondering how some of those things are going. I think you have a closed loop recycling system for meal service items, for instance. I know that if you look down at the carpets on some of the newer planes, there's something familiar about them as well that people might notice. So I was wondering what some of the other things the airline is doing to minimize its waste. Yeah, minimizing waste is a very important area. Um, we have an ambition in 2030 to reduce 50%, 50% of our waste compared to uh, 2009. Wow. So that's an incredible amount. A lot of waste comes from our catering on board of our aircraft. And um, there are some regulations that uh, prevent us from uh, being able to recycle plastics because it has been touched with uh, protein food and then you are you are obliged to burn it so we're also trying to influence the regulators to change the regulations in terms of making more of the materials able to recycle mm -hmm. and a nice example is that we collect our PET bottles that we have on board we collect them and we upcycle them separately in a separate process 
and we upcycle them to granulate. And from this granulate, we use this in 3D printers in our engineering and maintenance division. Oh, wow. That's, that's really interesting because we can make molds and, and all kinds of equipment in engineering and maintenance. It comes from PET bottles. We have another example. You mentioned it already. We have a closed loop process for all the plastics on board, but that was a demonstration flight, actually. Another pioneering event. All the plastic that we use on board is collected. It was a flight to Vancouver. And in Vancouver, it was cleaned, granulated, and recycled into exactly the same stuff and used on a flight back a couple of days later. It's a demonstrator for the industry. It doesn't pay off. We do not earn any money with it. Actually, it was extremely expensive again, but it showed the industry and the suppliers that they can proceed on these pathways. And that there's interest in doing so for sure. I think, you know, one of the other things I read about is that the airline designed lighter meal service items and also lighter fuel trolleys. And something as simple as that can save on the amount of fuel that's burned on a flight that people might not have top of mind. That's correct. That's correct. Like a food trolley, a cart that's used in the in the alleys of an aircraft, they used to weigh about 30 kilos and they have during uh, the uh, evolution they have produced, I think, to 11 kilos. That is a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And the good thing about saving fuel is that it saves money and it also saves carbon dioxide emissions. There's an economic reason to it, <laughs> too. <laughs> exactly. They go hand in hand. So uh, there's a good incentive for us. And then I was just sort of thinking, you know, one of the recycling projects that I sort of find the most interesting is that what do you do with old flight attendant uniforms? <laughs> yeah, we, we do not have that many, but once in a while you have to redesign your flight uniform. So we had a, a huge batch, I think it was uh, 12 years ago, when we moved to a new design because it was really not state of the art anymore. So when we had that batch, we were really wondering, what can we do? The fibers from the uniforms are actually very interesting and they were very strong fibers. And we talked to our supplier of uh, carpets in the aircraft. It's a Dutch company, actually. They were interested in the carpets. And if you look good at the carpets in our aircraft, you will see some light blue fibers in in the more dark gray. That's right. Little flecks of that signature blue. That's right. You see it on the outside of the airplanes and also still in flight attendants' uniforms. And you see those little dots of it (laughs) when you're walking up and down the aisle. It is true. It is true. So uh, we've done that. And still we have some, let's say, some uniforms that need to be exchanged and then we still uh, provide them to our carpet supplier. Interesting. Well, if we can turn to the future for a moment, too, you know, you mentioned that you're working with universities and governments, and I got to see one of those projects up close in the form of a prototype of a sort of futuristic airplane called the Flying V that uh, KLM is is working on with the University of Delft. Can you tell me a little bit more about the project, why KLM is involved, and what you hope comes out of it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely proud of it. Also because I'm a graduate from that university myself. <laughs> but the generation of today, I mean, uh, is much further in thinking about sustainability today. And these guys have been working on a project with a blended wing. So traditional aircraft have a tube and then separate wings. And that's inefficient because you have then two objects that need to fit together. So they invite a wing with the fuselage in the wing itself. It's like a flying wing, flying Mm -hmm. V. And what these guys did, they were uh, trying to connect with KLM to look for sponsorship to develop this further. And we were glad to step into that. And we brought the project a lot further. 
because in such a advantageous aircraft, you also have to look at how do you integrate the passenger cabin? How do you integrate the fuel tanks in such, such a configuration? How can you use the most efficient type of propulsion uh, on, on this type of aircraft? And this aircraft will save 20% of fuel just by the basic design of the wing fuselage combination. It's interesting. Yeah, you brought the real world application challenges, let's say, to the project. So, you know, you can't just put a fuel tank anywhere, especially if you hope to fly it in and out of commercial airports, right, with specific equipment that refuels planes. So things like that, that a design student might not have top of mind when they're sort of daydreaming about a new airplane design. Very interesting. Exactly, exactly. The very specific operational conditions is something that we can bring into such a design. We are not designers ourselves, but we are the guys who fly these aircraft and can help the students uh, a step further. Thanks very much for your time today and for walking us through everything. It's a pleasure. And welcome back in Amsterdam once uh, the opportunity is there. (laughs) Thank you. Of course, the flight is only one part of the journey. Before you even step on the plane, you've got to get to and through the airport first. I reached out to the folks at my own hometown airport and one of the busiest in the world, Los Angeles International, to talk about the sustainability challenges major facilities like LAX face both day to day and as they look to future expansions. I spoke with Los Angeles World Airport's Chief Sustainability and Revenue Management Officer, Samantha Bricker, about the various commitments LAX has made as part of its boldly moving to zero action plan to be more environmentally sensitive and to reduce both its waste and its carbon footprint in the coming years. So Samantha, I actually happen to pass through LAX quite a lot. It's my home airport and connects me pretty much everywhere in the world. But Even someone who spends a lot of time at the airport like me isn't fully aware of all the environmental challenges an airport that's the size of LAX with all the traffic that it gets might face. I was wondering if you could sort of run me through the laundry list of things that are on your mind and some of the creative solutions that your team has come up with to try to minimize the airport's environmental impact, waste, and things like that. Thank you. And you're absolutely right. We have uh, challenges at LAX almost like challenges that you would face at any city or any community across the country and across the globe. So things that everyone is worried about, global warming, climate change, air quality, water quality and management, waste management, and clean and sustainable energy. Those are all things that affect LAX just as they affect everybody else. And we work to really meet these challenges uh, with policies and practices designed to safeguard uh, the air quality of not only the airport, but the surrounding communities to divert waste, to manage water consumption and reduce water usage, not only on our campus, but by our passengers and restore our local habitat. Maybe we'll just sort of pinpoint a couple of the things that you mentioned. Speaking of sort of getting to zero waste with the food, I thought that was so fascinating because especially now in the era of COVID, when everything has to be wrapped and sanitized, what are some of the things that you're working with the concessionaires and also with the other businesses that operate with the airport to reduce that? Well, food donation is really important at LAX. And as you mentioned, we have a lot of unused food and not only with the concessionaires, but with the lounges as well. So Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we're being mindful of that. So we have a program actually that requires all of the concessionaires who are doing work at LAX that sell or provide food that they donate to an approved organization. And in 2019, pre-pandemic, this resulted in over 720,000 pounds of food 
being donated to folks who need it. So, you know, that's huge, especially in light of the homeless issues and the other issues that we're facing here, to be able to provide that service and make sure that that food is not being thrown away and trucked to a landfill. Not only is it an environmental issue, but it's a social issue as well. So we feel really good about that program. Mm, Speaking of that, you know, you'd also mentioned that the airport has really cut down on its demolition waste. We are undergoing a huge modernization program at LAX, a $14 billion capital program to get us ready for the Olympics in 2028. And as you may imagine, that results in a lot of construction waste and demolition waste. So we have put requirements in our contracts with our contractors to reduce and recycle their construction waste. And many of them are recycling over 86% of their construction and demolition waste. That means that that is not being trucked to landfills. It's not taking up our landfills. We don't have emissions from those trucks and recycling them and usually using them on site. So that's a huge accomplishment for sustainability uh, and the environment. Speaking of the construction that's going on, the airport is taking advantage of lower traffic for the past year or so to really speed up some of these projects, which probably also cuts down on the amount of time and carbon emitted just by constructing things faster. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about some of those provisos you put in the contracts with partners like Delta, who's constructing that connector to make sure that they adhere to standards that you want to have it in place from now on. And it's not just about green buildings. It's about other things too, like providing access to employees and stuff, right? Exactly. So many of our programs now have uh, mitigation measures that really have sustainability elements built in. So a few things, all of our new construction has to be weed silver or above. That helps with things like energy and water management. Many of our new contracts have to have purple pipe, which connects to reclaimed water. So that means, for example, like toilets, we're using recycled water for those type of things for Mm. new construction. For Delta, not only did they have to be weed silver, But one of the things that we're hoping, uh, or that's the requirement, is that they would make a connection between Terminal 2 and 3 and the Tom Bradley Terminal. So as domestic and international travel are very much connected, someone comes in international and then transfers to a domestic flight or vice versa. In other cases, we've had to bus people to those terminals. Now we're developing a walking path, a connector, so that people can more easily transfer through the terminals. And we're really doing that in various stages of the airport. So it's more of a campus. And we're really encouraging people to connect uh, through moving walkways rather than getting on buses. And obviously, that's better for air quality uh, and transportation and reducing greenhouse gas. So and there's simply benefits convenience, to the passenger. Let me yes. tell you. <laughs> exactly. So it's a passenger enhancement as well as an environmental benefit. That's interesting. You'd also mentioned last time we spoke $6 billion in improvements for landside access. So apart from passengers transiting through, you know, there's a lot of money being spent right now to make it easier just to get to the airport and to cut down on some of that notorious traffic and the emissions that it causes too. Well, thank you for bringing that up because that is the crown jewel. We are building Uh uh, our new automated people mover and elevated two and a half mile uh, transport from a new consolidated rental car facility that we're Mm. building over at La Cienega uh, near the 405 freeway that will consolidate 21 rental car locations in one building. So again, the environmental benefits of not having uh, all that local traffic and congestion That will connect up with our automated people mover, which will zip people into the airport in less than 10 minutes. 
And if you've been to LAX, you know that it can often take 10 minutes to go from Terminal 1 to Terminal 1. Oh, so <laughs> just that just that ramp coming off of like 96th Street, I get stuck there all the time, let me tell exactly, you. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that will also link up with the regional rail system. So there'll be a connection to the new uh, Crenshaw line and Green Line, which is being built uh, by Metro and an intermodal uh, transportation facility so people can park their car or take their Uber and Lyft outside of the airport and get on the automated people mover and come right into the airport. And that is under construction and scheduled to open in 2023. Oh, okay. So right around the corner. Speaking of those projects too, though, you know, you have to consider how building new facilities like that, putting new lines in, is going to impact the surrounding communities. So I was wondering what sort of things LAX has to work on to mitigate its impact on those towns that are just around it, including things like the traffic, but also air quality, like you mentioned before. Noise is a big issue. It's very important that we are a good neighbor and we spend a lot of time and money and effort to make sure that we are being a good neighbor. So for example, we have a very robust sound insulation program where we have funded with the FAA over $800 million uh, in sound insulation for communities around the airport. That's made a huge difference for those who are living in adjacent communities. We also take uh, transportation very seriously. And so not only will the automated people mover help in terms of landside access, but We run a flyaway service from Van Nuys and Union Station that takes people right into the airport. So again, trying to get people out of their cars. We're forming what we call a transportation management organization, which will be a one-stop shop for the 55,000 employees who come to the airport. And we'll provide uh, basically information on everything from mass transit, carpool match across the campus, information on microtransit and how to get to the airport in different ways rather than driving your car. So we feel that providing all of those options is not only a benefit to the environment, but a benefit to the community as well. Absolutely. You'd also mentioned things that I think, you know, get a little inside aviation, which is, you know, splitting flights between the two main runways at the airport, for instance, so as not to impact one community on one side more than the other, you know, routing planes in specific ways more over the ocean so that they're not sort of flying in right over communities, which I think is quite interesting. If we can turn from people to nature, I always look out the window when I take off from LAX and I always forget there's that huge beach right below the plane, just to the west of the airport. And there's nothing on it. It's airport and then it's these huge dunes. How is the airport working with that area? How do you end up protecting it? Because I believe it is a protected area. And what the measures you have in place to keep it intact are. Well, thank you for asking that question, because I think it's kind of a hidden secret. Folks are not aware that we're we're doing that. So it's about 300 acres uh, west of the airport, and it's home to over 900 species. And it's totally protected. There's no development allowed on the dunes. And about 200 acres are designated as the El Segundo Blue Blue Butterfly Habitat. That um, habitat is an endangered species. And so we've worked really hard to restore that habitat. And we've spent about $250,000 on restoration activities just since 2017. We also partner with the Santa Monica Bay Foundation and other government agencies such as U.S. Fish and Wildlife to ensure that we're really supporting conservation and restoration efforts there. And we also hold volunteer events that bring in community members 
and conservation groups to do work in the dunes and make sure that it's protected. So that's a really important part of what we do because we really want those sensitive species to return to the area. And luckily they have. And so a lot of the species that were in danger based on what was happening to the environment have now been protected. So we feel that it's a huge win for the community and for the environment. That's great. I was just sort of thinking, you know, it's been quite a while since I passed through LAX and I'm trying to think about what I'm excited most about besides the fact that I'll hopefully be flying somewhere fun. When you get back to the airport, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking forward to taking a look at? So we have construction going on at almost all of our terminals. We have a new midfield satellite concourse, which is really an adjacent building to the Tom Bradley International Terminal opening uh, in the next couple of months. So that will provide new gates and new beautiful technologically advanced facilities for our passengers. Speaking of not having to take a bus to a remote gate, for instance. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you can walk right through Tom Bradley International through an underground tunnel to get to this beautiful new facility that's going to be huge for international travels. We're also working on a new uh, program called the Airfield and Terminal Modernization Program, which will actually bring two new terminal facilities, a terminal, uh, a Concourse Zero and a Terminal Nine and new roadway improvements and airfield improvements to the airport before the Olympics. So we're working on getting that approved right now. And that's extremely exciting. It's another $6 billion project that will really, again, focus on improving the roadway and traffic congestion in the area, making things more efficient and better for the passenger experience. And again, addressing all of the environmental issues as we will have very sophisticated things on the environment baked into that project. So even though we're doing a lot of construction, we are not resting on our laurels. There's a <laughs> lot of work to do. We know that passengers will be anxious to come back to LAX now that they uh, hopefully will be getting vaccinated and travel will be picking up and we want to be ready for that. So we're very excited for that to happen. Well, I'm certainly ready. You know, aside from the flying itself and things like some of my favorite lounges at the airport, I really am looking forward to having more transportation options to getting there besides making my boyfriend schlep me down there or calling an Uber. So I can't wait to head back to the airport. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My final guest of the episode is Tim Johnson, the director of the Aviation Environment Federation. Based in the UK, the AEF is a non-governmental organization that focuses on policy change around aviation's impact on both people and the environment. I turned to Tim specifically both to get a balanced overview of how the airline industry is addressing climate change and whether or not it is adopting meaningful actions to do so. We also spoke about some of the factors that travelers can and should keep in mind when deciding which airline to fly or whether to hit the skies at all. Tim, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Pleased to be here. Good. Well, let's start with the major question, Tim. How bad for the environment is flying? I keep seeing this one figure, which is that aviation accounts for about 2% of man-made carbon emissions, which doesn't sound like a ton on the surface of it, but you consider how little time most of us actually spend in the air relative to other activities, and it seems like it's kind of a major impact. Yeah, it always sounds a very low number when you talk about percentages, doesn't it? But it's far from the truth. It is, in fact, one of the most carbon-intensive things that you are likely to do uh, in terms of your everyday activities. Uh, Last year, or pre-COVID anyway, The industry emitted globally almost one gigaton of carbon dioxide. 
And if you want to try and put that into more sort of recognisable figures. Yes, please. <laughs> if you were to take a trip from, say, New York to, to London, a transatlantic trip, then even in economy, making that return journey is going to emit about 0.7 tonnes of carbon dioxide, just that one passenger in that one seat. And then I have to say, it's not just the carbon dioxide. There are other ways in which aviation warms the atmosphere. Uh, If you've ever looked up, you see the contrails in the sky. Yes, lots of conspiracy theories about those. (laughs) Well, they're really just cirrus clouds, but they shouldn't be there. And the thing about cirrus clouds is that they trap radiation coming back from the Earth and raise temperatures. So on that basis, the world's leading scientists last year concluded that actually the total impact of aviation on climate change is three times that associated with its carbon dioxide emissions alone. So it really is a big impact. As I said at the beginning, if you think about the things that you do, driving or heating your home, even taking one long haul flight, it's right up there with those annual emissions. I think in a previous conversation, you'd said that the average person in Europe emits about seven tons of carbon dioxide per year. So when you think about that 0.7 tons that you just mentioned from New York to London, it's pretty much the same. I was doing some calculations yesterday from Los Angeles to New York and back. That's a tenth of your carbon outprint for the year. Exactly. It quickly adds up the time you take the second or that third trip. You know, it could well be sort of going on 30, 40% of your annual footprint. That's incredible. I wonder if we can turn to what airlines are doing for a moment. Lots of airlines tout measures like offering carbon offsets or buying them themselves or letting the passengers purchase them as part of their tickets, purchasing new, more fuel-efficient aircraft like those next-generation Airbus A350s, and developing sustainable aviation fuel. But how effective are these measures? And if we can focus on sustainable aviation fuel, because I think you said that that could be the most significant change that we see in our lifetimes. Well, yes, because if you think of the offsetting question, that's really an admission that it's either cheaper and more available to reduce emissions in other sectors than it is to reduce it in aviation. And then you factor in what could aviation do itself? If it were affordable, what could the aviation industry do to really deliver zero carbon flight? Mm -hmm. And then we start to think about the role that hydrogen or fully electric aircraft may play. Now, there's certainly a role for these new technologies. They're already demonstrators in production and doing sort of test flights, but they tend to be four to five seaters. The real challenge is how do you have an electrically powered aircraft that will take 100 passengers or 200 passengers because it would need a battery size that was almost the size of the aircraft. And that's commercial flight, as we know. Four to five seaters are, you know, wonderful. But, you know, you have to think in terms of replacing a Boeing 737 or something like that. To really scale it up, that's right. And so these are the technologies for tomorrow. And I don't mean next month or next year, but they're really for the next generation. Uh, If we succeed, we'll probably see these aircraft in 20 or 30 years time. So on that basis, you asked about sustainable aviation fuels. What can you do today that allows an aircraft that's currently in operation, that still has perhaps 10 or 15 years of operational life left in it? Mm -hmm. How do you keep that in the air and still claim that it can be a greener flight? And the answer is you do something about the fuels. 
And there's two ways of doing it. One is to actually use a biomass as a feedstock. So it could be waste material, municipal waste or cooking oil waste or agricultural residues, genuine waste materials that have no other purpose, but they could be repurposed as an aviation fuel. Mm -hmm. Or, and this is more, I suppose, credible long term, because all those wastes are probably in limited supply. You know, we'll be able to use some of them in, in the near future, but we're not going to be able to use and entire power the entire aviation industry using waste materials because we're trying to reduce our waste generally in society. Right. So a more longer and more credible solution for fuels is to create synthetic fuel. And you can do that. And this is going to sound slightly futuristic. Well, that's what we're here for. <laughs> Indeed, to think about how things could be different. But, you know, you can capture carbon from the atmosphere. You can extract it. And there are pioneer plants in the US and in Canada that are doing just that today. And you can extract hydrogen from water sources and you can put the two together. And through sort of um, process of synthesis, you can create a synthetic hydrocarbon fuel. So we can manufacture in the future, we can manufacture aviation fuel. We don't need to be taking oil out the ground. Now, it has to be said that when an aircraft flies, it will still burn that fuel and it will still emit CO2. Mm -hmm. But at least it's a closed loop. You've extracted the CO2 from the atmosphere in the first place. You've turned it into a fuel and you can keep doing that. We won't be adding to CO2 in the atmosphere will be keeping it on a neutral cycle. Right. And this is the big hope for flying. We know mm. that synthetic fuels in the future is where we want to try and aim to be. Basically, you know, you're working with a set amount of carbon and then you don't ever increase that. You could probably decrease it if you start using less fuel and develop alternative means of powering an aircraft. But as long as you can produce sustainable aviation fuel, the synthetic aviation fuel, rather, you're not actually putting more carbon into the atmosphere. You're just using what's already there, essentially. That's correct. But you've added one really important sustainability factor. Of course, it's very energy intensive mm -hmm. to make synthetic fuel. So this only works if you have renewable energy. And we don't want to divert renewable energy from other sectors that need it, because that just leaves them with a headache. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to be creating surplus renewable energy to actually power this production process. But if you can do that, then yes, that word sustainable can be tagged on the front of synthetic. And that's where the industry effort is really going to be focused over the next 10 years. Let's see if we can come up with a drop-in fuel that existing aircraft and existing aircraft engines can use mm -hmm. until such time as those hydrogen-powered or electric aircraft are available and flying at scale. From an economic point of view, is these aircraft are investments for decades. It's like buying a house for an airline because they cost tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on the specific type. <laughs> You've got to have some sort of fuel that you can use in the existing aircraft. Otherwise, there's going to be no incentive whatsoever to develop it, unless it seems like governments start getting into the fray, which they have been doing. And I'm sort of wondering, are there fixes or policies that governments are starting to look at more seriously and perhaps talk about enforcing that airlines are going to have to start adhering to? There are. I think you made a really important point about the lifetime of an aircraft. I mean, typically, 
if it's bought as a new aircraft by an airline, it's going to be in operational service for at least 22 to 25 years as mm-hmm. a passenger jet. It mm-hmm. may well then go on to serve the freight market after that. That means that we can probably predict the aircraft that will still be flying in 2035 and 2040 because they're the aircraft that are being made now. Right. And therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, are sustainable aviation fuels, if we can scale them, is it enough? Is that all the industry needs to do? And I think the answer is probably no. There are real reasons why those sustainable aviation fuels may not scale. Firstly, there's a, a lack of any international target for the aviation sector. The industry has its own, I have to say. It's sort of leading the way and setting its own target. But there isn't a regulator out there who is forcing them to make these changes. They're very expensive. Um, Typically, they're a minimum of at least twice as much as kerosene, probably more like three times on current prices. Wow. And fuel is already the major operational cost for most airlines. So you're talking about doubling that possibly. Yes, and at a time when most airlines are trying to bounce back from the pandemic Mm. and they don't have a lot of cash. So you put those three things together and there isn't a huge incentive for airlines to make the investment uh, in these products. So you're right, governments need to intervene and rather than allow this to be all about voluntary agreements and industry targets... I think regulators do need to come back and, if you like, seize the moment and set not just realistic targets for emission reductions, but mandate the use of sustainable aviation fuels. And we're beginning to see that. There are examples in Europe of, you know, we're going to say within two or three years, by 2025 maybe, we're going to see 2% perhaps of all aviation fuel in Europe coming from sustainable sources. And that may not sound high, but bear in mind, there is a whole process. You need to build production plants. You need to secure feedstock. It can't just happen overnight. So there's a planning time and lead-in time for that. But we are getting governments starting to um, invest some sort of seed money, if you like, in the infrastructure to help the industry. But in return, they want to mandate that airlines will use the product that they are and they are producing. Well, that makes a lot of sense. There's talk about government waste. There's no reason to build all of that if you don't actually make the recipients use the final product, right? Yes, you effectively have to change the market. You're going to bring me on to an issue that I feel very strongly about. Mm -hmm. You can have regulatory pressure and there is that role for governments. And you can also have price uh, pressures insofar as you can use taxation and other measures to put a premium on kerosene so it makes it more attractive to switch to alternative sources. These are things that governments can do. But I don't think we should forget that that we can exert pressure too. As travellers, we can exert pressure. Mm -hmm. And it's often a really overlooked factor that, you know, where we spend our dollars, um, the choices we make, can influence airline behaviour. If you start to choose airlines for your journey that are already making this investment, that can tell, if you like, a sound story about their sustainability journey, Mm -hmm. then, then you are encouraging those airlines. And by the same time, those that are not doing it 
you know, potentially then losing out on revenue and customers and are more likely to, to, to change and accelerate the progress and the journey that they're on. So I think it's a big role for us. Absolutely. Well, are there certain resources that passengers can go to to find out information about airlines that they are thinking of flying? The major factor with a lot of travelers is simply price. But given that airlines often match each other, you you do sometimes have a, a choice among carriers. And so if you're interested to see what your airline is actually doing or whether flying one airline might have more of an environmental impact than another, are there resources you can point listeners to? Well, in a sense, I wish I could. Um, There are many carbon calculators out there, Mm -hmm. and you won't have to look very hard to find one. But the thing about a carbon calculator, for example, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, ICAO has a carbon calculator. But it will tell you, if you put in your origin and destination, the average carbon emitted on that route. It will not tell you how airline A and airline B perform. It would just give you the average. But I think the point that I would really like to make is if you're going to support consumer choice, you really have to be able to distinguish between airline A and airline B. Exactly. And that is so hard to do. We're beginning to get some experimentation in the market. So if you look at Google Flights, if you look at Skyscanner, they are starting to tell you that as well as the price and, you know, the time and when it's convenient, which is the greenest flight on that route? It's not always clear how that information is generated, but it is starting to support consumer choice. And some unpublished data that we have seen suggests that all other factors being equal when airlines do compete with price, if they are told that a particular flight is greener, a surprisingly high percentage of people make that choice. So I like to think that there's a public audience out there that is ready to have this and is ready to sort of vote with their credit cards in terms of where they spend their dollars. But, you know, we need to have this differentiation between airlines. But um, we haven't seen it to date. It's entirely within the gift of the airlines. You know, they hold the data. Mm -hmm. Regulators haven't asked them to disclose it. It is available, I have to say. There are lots of schemes that airlines have to participate in um, around the world. Um, An offsetting scheme that ICAO runs called Corsia an emissions trading system in Europe. All this data is collected individually by airlines and submitted to the regulators for the purposes of compliance, but it is not publicly available. But I really would think that it could help to really accelerate the pace of change in the industry if airlines felt that they were competing not just on price, but also on their green credentials. Absolutely. I mean, as more people look to their impact on the environment, especially after a year when many of us who might have been flying a lot more beforehand have been grounded and are are looking at our travel choices more meaningfully, that this factor might come to the foreground. You were saying you're required to fly for work from time to time. I certainly am. And I'll obviously be thinking about the flights that I have to take versus the ones that I want to take a bit more seriously in the future. But I do want to continue flying and seeing parts of the world. So what are some of the things that you, I and your average traveler can keep in mind in order to perhaps to make sure our flying impact is lessened where possible and some of the other things that we can keep in mind where we can look out for our carbon footprint and make sure that we're doing as little harm as possible. First of all, look at where you need to go. Mm -hmm. Are there more 
lower carbon ways of getting there. In some cases, once you've taken the decision to fly, then it's the choice of airline. And what I didn't say earlier is don't think this is an insignificant factor. There is an organization based in San Francisco called the International Council for Clean Transportation, and they do fantastic analysis that rank airlines. And they showed that the difference between the best and worst performing airline in terms of its fuel efficiency on transatlantic and trans-Pacific routes, the gap can be as much as 60%. Oh, wow. Even in the US domestic market, where you've got competition and it's quite strong competition, the difference can be over 25%. So firstly, think about whether you have to fly. Secondly, look really carefully at the carriers. Do they use a proportion of sustainable aviation fuel on that flight? They'll probably tell you if they do. But then there are still more things that we can do on top of that. This won't be a popular one. You should fly economy. That's a big one. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, it's definitely going to raise a few eyebrows, I think. But the difference between flying economy and flying first class transatlantic is a factor of four. So if you can sit at the back of the plane, your emissions will be a fraction of those in premium seating. So, you know, think about where you sit. And of course, you know, if you've got choice, you may not always have a choice about where you fly to, but obviously flying is proportional. The emissions are proportional to distance. If you can think of destinations that are closer to home, that aren't necessarily long haul, then that's going to have a dramatic impact on the footprint of your flight as well. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like a lot of us will probably be sticking a bit closer to home for the foreseeable future as a lot of uncertainty remains. But that said, I'm looking forward to getting back out into the wider world and we'll keep a lot of these things in mind. So thank you very much for your time today and for walking me through everything. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Talking to Tim really brought home just how much even the occasional flight can raise your carbon footprint. Does that mean we should all just stop flying? I hope not. But my conversation with him will certainly have me evaluating my future travel plans and questioning whether each and every flight I take is worthwhile in a way that I have not done so in the past. I'll also be looking at other ways to reduce my carbon footprint in an effort to offset at least some of my flying. On the other hand, speaking with both Carl from KLM and Samantha from LAX, gives me hope that airlines and airports, as well as the governments they work with, are taking climate change more seriously than ever, and that they're searching for creative solutions to address the aviation industry's considerable environmental impact. I know that I'm going to look for ways to hold both them and myself more accountable for travel-related emissions in the future. For more information on this episode and the rest of our season, check out ConsciousTravelerPod.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram at ConsciousTravelerPod. We'd like to give special thanks to Matthew Carpenter, who composed our music.